0: Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. I thought I would answer patron emails. I got a lot of emails about seasonal affective disorder, or SAD, or SAD. There is a lot of BS on the internet, and so let me clear up some of that. I actually spent a portion of my early career specializing in this. I gave talks on it. I don't know why. Maybe because Seattle. Not sure. First off, there's a huge difference between having a disorder like major depressive disorder, or bipolar, there's a huge difference between having a disorder in the DSM and feeling a little down during the winter months. A lot of people online will say, oh my God, I have seasonal affective disorder. And it's in a, it's possible that you do, but it's also possible that you're just feeling a little down or you just don't like the winter months because you can't spend time outside or something. And that, that is a far cry from actually suffering from a disorder. People who suffer from Actual diagnosable major depressive disorder, you know, that has a seasonal aspect to it. These people are often suicidal on a daily basis. They can't get out. They can't get out of bed. They hate themselves. They think they're a burden on society. They t- they don't take pleasure in anything for months and months and months. They might cry all the time. They might have no emotion. You know, it's a pretty severe thing. Major depression is a is a very severe thing. And unless you've actually experienced it or known someone that that's gone through it or had a client that that has gone through it, you really it's it's hard to know exactly what's like because people talk about depression in common language as this uh, mild thing, but it's it's it can be mild, but it but for those who are diagnosed with it, it's a very severe thing. The other thing is that regarding seasonal affective disorder, what we use in the language of the DSM is we will say a mood disorder like major depressive disorder with a seasonal pattern. That's what we will say. And it's important to note that this um, clarifier doesn't designate winter. So we have people who suffer from major depressive disorder and it will cycle into a more severe form in the summer. So sometimes it's a winter, sometimes it's not. And that's another important thing to understand. So why would this happen, and why maybe the broader question: Why do some people feel a little, just a little bit more down during the winter months? Well, the speculation that I will propose here, or that other people have proposed, but that I will, I don't know, propagate on the podcast is that during the a lot of species during the winter months will slow down. You know, hi, think of hibernating bears, this kind of thing. And we are animals who lived in nature, and it's possible that our environment was such that during the winter months, there were fewer resources. And one of the ways to cope with that is to enter a slower um, physiology. You are less motivated, You, you know, our, your metabolism is slower, you're sleeping more, you don't really feel like doing anything, you're, you know, you're not enjoying things anymore. And what that results in, in, you know, 200,000 years ago, a million years ago, is uh, an animal that just generally slows down during the winter, and thus doesn't need to eat as much. So it's possible that we come from a branch of the evolutionary tree that still retains a little bit of that. I'm sure there's some technical term for it, but I'm going to say like minor hibernation in the winter months. And so for a lot of us, that can either exacerbate depression or it can give an otherwise non-depressed person a little lower motivation and they notice it, you know, winter to winter. Another possibility is that, uh, uh, you know, when we stay inside all winter, which is which can be common, particularly in you know, areas where the weather changes quite a bit, then we are less in tune with nature. and nature is a very important part of our um, physiology. it's there's a lot of studies that show that when people are cut off from nature, seeing nature, being in nature, that a lot of bad things could happen, which makes sense, right? we're not we're We're not designed to sit inside concrete boxes all day. We're really designed to be in nature and we feel comfortable there. And you can find some people who literally the entire year long, and particularly in the winter, where they don't spend any time in nature. And so that that's another thing to think about. Also, some people just have negative associations with particular seasons, right? Uh, the holidays, this kind of thing. And that can also exacerbate depression. But, of course, we can have negative associations with any season. It could be negative associations with the summer or fall or whatever. Also, in the summer, particularly in some climates, there is less sun and thus less vitamin D, less exercise, more sitting on the couch, which can also lower mood. One of the most important things that depressed or people suffer from mood mood disorders should consider is exercise, getting outside, these kinds of things. It can have wonderful effects on one's mood. I can't remember off the top of my head, but I remember hearing that the studies demonstrating exercise as an effective treatment for depression versus all the medications, exercise is by far a better, uh, it's more effective in reducing people's depression than, than, a, than a medication. Now, for some people who are depressed, they're like, well, it's a catch-22 because if I'm depressed, I don't want to exercise. So I need a medication to kind of get me up off the couch and exercising. But anyway, so there's a lot of treatment, and this is where a lot of the BS comes in online is, you know, they'll talk, you know, the light boxes and stuff. And some of it, it, it is true. Or some of it can work. But the general things that people will try – and this is, you would always do this with a professional, particularly if you suffer from full-blown mood disorder like depression or bipolar or something, you can use light boxes. The idea is, is that in the winter months there's less light, and if you put a big light box on your desk at work, it simulates daylight, and that uh, gets into your eyes and on your skin, and that helps you to feel more like it's the summer or something. Um, vitamin D, obviously, through... Uh, supplements or the sun, or just flat-out antidepressant meds or other mood disorder meds, SSRIs, this sort of thing. And uh, there's so many studies looking into this. I I remember, again, when I would lecture on this 20 years ago, there was just a mountain back then, by the way, I actually had to go to the library. I went to the University of Washington Psychology Library and, uh, or Social Science Library and would physically get the, you know, look up the journals on the computer, go to the journals on the shelf, pull it off, you know, Xerox it, pay for that, you know, there's a whole thing. <laughs> now, obviously, we just do a search online. But I remember back then, there were many, many studies, and there's been many, many studies since then. And the bottom line is, is that uh, it's hard to know if you suffer from Uh, seasonal affective differences, you know, whether it's summer or winter or whatever. It's hard to know what will work for you. It's possible that light boxes are helpful for a lot of people because of placebo. It's possible SSRIs. I mean, uh, well, a more precise way of putting it is a lot of the treatments that are proposed for seasonal affective disorder have a placebo element to it. Now, if it's a, if Lightbox is a placebo for you and it actually improves, improves your mood, then who cares, right? I mean, it doesn't matter. But just understand that um, there's that. And also that the possibility of one of these um, treatments working for you is not very high. So this is why it's important to work with a professional, particularly, again, if you're uh, suffering a great deal. Because a professional that specializes in depression would be able to, you know, problem solve all the various different possibilities to help you. And, you know, you deserve help. Okay. Uh, I haven't actually made an episode regarding emails a long time. So I feel like I really want to race through a lot of these things. So I might go a little faster than normal. So Amanda from Seattle says, I am a student in the CFT program at Antioch. Oh, well, Amanda, have I met you? (laughs) Have you been one of my students? Um, I have a question about a statement you made regarding this. And by the way, whenever people email in, there's a form that people fill out saying whether or not it's okay to read it on the podcast. They're giving consent and also how they want to be referred to. So that's why if you ever want to contact me, you always want to go to the website and email me there because it it answers all the important questions that need to be uh, asked. And it also has a lot of the disclaimers, you know. Uh, Don't contact me through Instagram or Facebook. If you really want to reach me, you want to email that way. Anyway, um, Amanda from Seattle says, I have a question about a statement you made regarding the similarities between the insecure attachment styles. You mentioned that underneath every narcissistic avoidant personality is a borderline preoccupied personality. I can't wrap my head around the idea that covertly every narcissistic avoidant personality has a borderline preoccupied personality. End of email. Yeah, that's a good question. So I'm only 80% sure of this conceptualization. But in my investigation of the literature and the research and human beings, I have come to the conceptualization that underneath every avoidant attached individual underneath every narcissistic personality individual is a preoccupied um, borderline ish uh, individual. Because when I would treat people who were narcissistic, I would soon realize that they were underneath this veil of grandiosity and pathological independence and self-importance was a vast sea of needs that have not been met. And a uh, when they're pushed and when the, the veil of their narcissism is stripped away, when the veil of their pathological independence is stripped away like for the avoidant attached individual then they will decompensate similar to the way a borderline or severely preoccupied person will and what i realized was oh yeah i guess that makes sense that the reason why these personalities develop whether it's borderline or narcissistic or preoccupied attachment or avoidant attachment is because of unmet needs. And so both the narcissistic and the borderline and the preoccupied and the avoidant person has a lot of needs that haven't been met. It's just different styles of coping with it, of course. So the avoidant person avoids and the preoccupied person increases their worry and increases their attention and and uh, demanding that, that their needs get met. But both are in a frequent state of not getting their needs met. But at least the preoccupied and the borderline person tries to meet their needs. The narcissistic and avoidant person, they don't. And so it could be argued that on average the narcissistic or avoidant person has a larger sea of unmet needs underneath the service. Now, you could also say that the narcissistic and avoidant person they have protective factors cuz they rely on the self and they also don't encode memories as well and thus don't remember when their needs aren't being met but they definitely do have underneath that veil you know just a a huge amount of pain and you'll see it sometimes Uh, there were case reports of L. Ron Hubbard of Scientology fame who uh, seemed to potentially have narcissistic personality disorder of course I can't diagnose from afar but he seems like possibly a, a candidate for a popular figure who had that and There were accounts from people close to him that when something bad happened in his life, he would lock himself in his office and cry for three days. And so this is someone that is not doing well. And uh, the rest of the year, he was extremely grandiose about who he was. He enjoyed manipulating other people. He had extremely narcissistic understandings of himself. But when that was stripped away and it was... No longer available, you know, and and that's what happens to narcissistic people is that there comes a time when they the defense no longer holds and the pain and the realization that they have flaws will smack them in the face and they won't have the ability to push back on it with narcissism and they will just crumble because there's they've never had any of their needs met. No one has ever made them feel like they matter really. And no one has ever made them feel like they're lovable as who they are. And so they're in this constant treadmill running race of trying to prove to themselves and other people that they're worth it through this, you know, bragging and achieving and putting other people down and denying other people their needs. So that's what I mean by underneath every narcissistic or avoidant person is a borderline or preoccupied person. I hope that makes sense. All right, this next email is from Upper Tier Patron Jack from Canada. He writes, What is an efficient way to get past the initial anger of a situation to get to the hurt and the fear? I feel angry at the world, and I have a lot of hate and cynicism. I am struggling to find the hurt and fear under it all because all I can think of is punching my landlord in the face. I have not acted on the anger because lately I asked myself, "What would Dr. Honda do before responding to things?" So thanks for being different. So thanks for being the differentiated voice on my shoulder. End of email. Well, the first thing I'll say is, you know, you're asking the question, "What would Dr. Honda do?" You're really just asking, like, "What would the inner wise person do?" You're not asking what I would, because you don't really know what I would do. Maybe I would punch the landlord in the face. I don't know if I'm really above doing something like that. But you're asking, what would the wiser part of myself do? And you're following that. So that's what I'll say to that. Um, So how do you get to the underlying hurt and fear? Well, obviously, going to therapy is one thing. I mean, honestly, I I hate to always say that. But uh, if you're looking for some skill that I'm going to be able to download to you, I'd don't see that happening. There are so many reasons why one might have a hard time dealing with their emotions, knowing their emotions, getting to know their emotions. You know, it could literally be the issue of you were never given the attunement that you needed such that you can even have the possibility of knowing your needs. It is a false notion that somehow everyone has the basic building blocks to Uh, understand their emotional state. Not everyone does. And I was confused by this when I first started out as a therapist. People would talk about emotional awareness and uh, I had a version of what that meant in my mind. Uh, But for some people, emotional awareness is, you know, you have to start from the very beginning. Um, I've worked with clients and I've known people personally who when, uh, you know, they're in a very heightened situation, they notice that something is wrong, but they can't put words to it. Because in in a similar way that a two-year-old can't really know their emotional state, or they have a really hard time knowing their emotional state, particularly if they haven't been attuned to, right? We don't expect a two-year-old to have a sophisticated understanding of their emotions and to be able to reflect on themselves very much. Some two-year-olds can, but most can't and for some people they never were and so why are why are 7 year olds and 17 year olds and 27 year olds more self-aware than a 2 year old well it's not because they just grew up it's not just because they got older it's because they were attuned to by someone and someone actually reflected their emotions back to them and said oh it looks like you feel angry right now oh i see you're hurt or it they were it was modeled to them oh you know when you hit me that hurts my feelings or oh when I see, hear that really loud noise, it, it scares me. And the child learns. And if you never were given that, and many people haven't been given that, then you'll be 57 and you just have no idea what you're feeling. So I don't know a particular patient, Jack, if you're one of those people. But the, maybe one skill to think about, like if you're wanting to punch your landlord in the face, is to review what your landlord did to you that bothered you somehow. Because your your landlord bothered you somehow. If you want to punch them in the face, then your landlord somehow bothered you. So then you want to think about that. Okay, how, did, how did they bother me? What did they do? And then you want to try to imagine what, what hurt or fear could be there. So that's sometimes a, a good rule to follow is if I was hurt, what would I be hurt by right now? If I was afraid what would I be afraid of right now? Instead of looking for something, you kind of start with the assumption that you are just as a, a working exercise, and then you can find out. All right, this next question is from Anonymous Upper Patron. They ask, is it possible for a physically abusive person to become a better person? End of question. Well, I assume what you mean by better, you are meaning a non-abusive person or a less abusive person, and the answer is absolutely yes, 100%. When abusive people are given the right treatment, they usually will become a quote-unquote better person, and I've seen it many, many times. Okay, this next question, anonymous upper-tier patron writes, Is it possible to avoid resentment in regards to not having or or having children? I am a 26-year-old woman, and I have never wanted children, but my partner always has wanted to have children. This is a difference we knew about each other before we even started dating Is it possible to reach a decision without resentment on either side? End of email. Yeah, absolutely. There are many couples who are like this, who one is 100% wanting to have kids and the other is 100% not wanting to have kids. The myth out there is that resentment is inevitable and the two individuals should divorce because what's the point? But, and that could be a good piece of advice for sure, but... It's not universal. Can there be resolution without resentment? For sure. Can there be no resolution? Yes. Might there be re- resentment? Yes. But with you know communication and taking care of each other, and you know s- assessing if this is really a deal breaker or not for either one is the way to go. All right. This next email is from Upper Tier Patron Austin from California. They write. I recently listened to the attachment class episode and it sparked a question about my own attachment style. I would say that I have an avoidant attachment style with romantic partners as well as my parents. However, with close friends, I find myself being extremely preoccupied rather than avoidant. Is there a reason that I may have different attachment styles de- depending on which attachment figure is in question? End of email. Uh, Yeah. So the first thing I'll say to everyone is that the attachment class episode is available to patrons only. So if you're not a patron and you want to listen to that, as you also want to listen to the attachment deep dive, which a lot of people have appreciated. Um, I've done a lot of episodes that I've worked really hard on, including that one. And for whatever reason, that one really resonates with a lot of people. I can see why, but, you know, I've made a lot of deep dives. But, um, but anyway, that one, you know, really resonates with me. Anyway, so the question, Austin is, you know, with these people, you know, with partners and parents, I am avoidant, but with close friends, I am preoccupied. What's the deal? Well, and I've answered this question before, but I will do it again. Maybe not in this way, maybe not on this exact question, but people get really hung up on the distinctions between these happening within the same person. Um, They'll say, you know, I feel like sometimes I'm avoidant, sometimes I'm preoccupied. What's going on here? So in brief, and I've answered this question before, so I'll try to be brief, is that is not disorganized. Sometimes professors even will say that if you have a mixture between avoidant and preoccupied, that is disorganized. No, that is a complete misunderstanding of disorganized. And I will admit that it took me a long time to understand disorganized attachment. It's actually really weird. It's a very particular thing that unless you see it and study it a lot, it's hard to know. So, uh, So I'll just say that. The other thing I'll say is that the important thing to focus on that I will recommend people do is focus on the dimension between secure and insecure. So we all know that for securely attached, you are what we call secure attached. If you're insecurely attached, then you're either avoidant, disorganized, or preoccupied. And it's more important to know where you are on that dimension, on that axis. Um, And people usually have a good sense of that. They're like, well, yeah, I'm I'm, on the scale from one to 10, with 10 being the most secure and one being the least secure. I'm probably like a five or a three or something, or sometimes I feel like I'm a six. And then, so from there, you can know generally where you land in terms of, your relational traumas, how much you've recovered, corrective experiences, this sort of thing. And then that will be fairly stable over time. Now, how do we deal with that insecurity is up for, you know, up to the moment. And for some people they tend to be very consistent in the way they respond to insecurity and threat. They will be what we call avoidant, and others will be very Disorganized, and other people will be very preoccupied. Disorganized is actually kind of in its category of its own, which I won't go into, but, uh, but other people will have a mixture. Some days will be this, some days will be that. Some people have, with romantic partners, they're avoidant, and with friends, they're preoccupied. The key is, is that when you feel a threat, you have a patterned way of responding, and depending on the context, you might change your pattern. Like, someone might be say a 5 on the insecurity on the security scale and they're in a relationship with someone that is very much a pursuer and so with this person they tend to avoid because they feel invaded they feel uh guilt tripped and they just decide you know what i think when this person's hurting my feelings i'm just not going to say anything cuz if i say anything it's going to get volatile and so so this might not even be a conscious decision, but the person over time develops an avoidant style with their preoccupied partner, but then they uh, get divorced or they break up and they have a new partner. And the next partner is very avoidant and very much of the distancer. And in that situation, this f- person on the five, you know, at five out of 10 might become more preoccupied because the distancing that this new partner engages in is is very threatening and causes the same individual who was avoidant in the past now is becoming more anxious and preoccupied with this person so the key is is don't think about preoccupied or an avoidant as personality types Now you could say disorganized is kind of a, per, a personality type again, listen to all my other episodes on it but When you think about avoidant versus preoccupied, don't think of it as a personality type. Think about it as a... That's why we call it a style. You can change your style, right? You can change the way you dress. If you decided tomorrow you could become goth or you could become preppy or whatever. It's your choice, but you tend to have a way that you act, right? Well, some people, one day they're goth and next day they're preppy, right? Because they have two different styles. Well... That's why we use the word style. That's why it was invented that way, because it's a style of reacting to attachment. And it can change, and it can be varied. So, you know, don't think about avoidant versus preoccupied as a personality fixture. All right, this next email is from upper-tier patron Lara from Toronto. She writes, I've been noticing myself feeling uncomfortable every time my partner talks about his accomplishments. He's a very confident person, and the way he talks about work and personal successes feels standoffish to me. It makes me feel like I'm not good enough, though he reassures me that I should be proud of myself too. I think this stems from my perfectionism, as I find it very hard to celebrate my own successes. What is the line between confidence and narcissism? What are some strategies for me to show compassion to my partner, celebrate his successes, and not dwell on my feelings of imperfection? End of email. Well, up to your patron Lara. This is a um, you know, difficult question to answer for a number of reasons, and it's complicated. There's a number of different aspects to it. You know, obviously, going to therapy is, is the answer, uh, but what you would want to explore there would be you're talking about perfectionism, and the, the key mediating variable with perfectionism is self-esteem. I am perfectionistic, but I have good enough self-esteem such that my perfectionism actually drives me. You know, sometimes people will ask me they're like, "How do you do so many things? You're a professor, you're a therapist, you're a podcaster, you're a YouTuber, you're in a band, you, you know, have friends and, you know." And part of that is because I have a personality type of perfectionism such that when I wake up in the morning, I have like 10 goals. I'm like, okay, I'm going to get this done and, and I feel good about it and I'm going to make it, you know, awesome. And I'm, it's going to be fun to create that thing or it's, I'm going to clean the garage and, you know, I'm really, I'm a very driven person. Perfectionism at the definition of it is the, an, a very um, strong inner desire to succeed and to complete things that, one can feel good about but if you have low self-esteem you have this drive to achieve but you believe you can't do it or if you do achieve you actually don't think of it as achieving as you're getting to lara as you're saying you find it hard to celebrate your own successes that's often because of low self-esteem so the answer is sometimes not to target perfectionism but to target self-esteem if you have enough self-esteem then your perfectionism just is a the fuel that gets you going, you know, that, that gets you out there achieving things. The other thing is that when you are beating yourself up about things on the inside of you and you see someone else being very confident and praising themselves, then it's going to aggravate you because you don't understand it. And it might even trigger a voice in you. You know, there's a possibility that for some people with this issue, they were shamed a lot or made fun of a lot or abused emotionally growing up, and they have this internalized voice that there's something wrong with them. And when someone else comes along and, and they seem to like themselves and they're praising themselves, then you hear this voice that was told to you when you were two years old and three years old and you were praising yourself because two two years old, two year olds and three year olds in, you know, under good circumstances will praise themselves. They'll be like, I'm a fast runner. I'm the best at, you know, spelling. And it's like, you know, they're not the best. You know, they're not very fast as a runner, but you don't put them down for that. You just say, yeah, you're really fast. You're really good. And if you were uh, so um, for a lot of people that go through that kind of emotional abuse, they were shamed. They were told, no, you're not good. You're a terrible person. And so there's this inner conflict going on that was internalized of this voice of like, I'm good at things. Right. And this other voice that quickly comes in, that was internalized of no, you're not, you're not good. So someone comes along on the outside of you as an adult and is talking about how great they are and how much they've achieved. Well, it triggers that voice inside of you that you internalized when you were a kid to say, no, you're not. So in some ways it's possible there that your partner, is it your partner? Yeah. That your partner is uh, the, when he compliments himself, it reminds you of the way you used to compliment yourself before you were abused at the age of two or three. And then uh, you, and you become the abuser in that moment. You, you, cause you internalized that. Now, I don't know Lara, if that, if this is what you went through, but That'd be one avenue to explore in therapy. All right, let's take a break and we'll get back more emails. Hey, deserving listeners. As you all know, I am constantly recommending that people go to therapy. We all need therapy from time to time. Well, one of the options available that is definitely worth checking out is BetterHelp. If you're looking for a therapist, I would give it a try by going to betterhelp.com slash Kirk. Make sure you use the promo code Kirk because you get 10% off your first month and it really helps us out as you watch these videos i know many of you have been motivated to find your own therapist which is great because you deserve it and i know also that it can be hard to find a good fit find the right one for you well one of the options available in terms of your shopping is to go to betterhelp.com kirk i've been told you can start communicating with your therapist in under 24 hours you can message your counselor at any time plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions I've also been told that it's often less expensive than in-person therapy, and you should know that this service is available to clients worldwide. So go to betterhelp.com slash Kirk to get 10% off your first month today. All right, we're back from the break. I want to do an old patron prize or old patron praise, as Hallie would put it, the OPP section of our podcast in which I name Really old patrons, and these patrons go back to March 2016. So this was more than five years ago. These four people became patrons and have, and have remained patrons the entire run of the podcast up until now. We have Naveen from New South Wales, Australia. We have Maite from California. Maite is someone that um, we know we met in person. Maite is awesome. I'm glad that you're still a patron. And Maite was actually on some episodes that you can listen to, uh, or her emails were on an episode years ago that were amazing and really helped a lot of people. Alex was a patron, being a patron in March 2016, and Carl from Brunswick, Victoria, Australia? It's <laughs> Brunswick, Victoria, Australia. Anyway, thank you, Naveen, Maite. Love you so much. Alex and Carl for becoming patrons. We... We had two people from Australia becoming a patron that, that month. I wonder what was going on there. Um, all right. Let's get to more emails. All right. This next email is from up patron Kirk. It's weird to hear my own name out of my own mouth because I don't usually say it. I didn't know we had a patron. I didn't know we had a listener named Kirk. <laughs> my name is so rare. It just sounds weird to say out loud. Um. In response to the Dependency Podcast, I have a family in mind that fits the description you presented. In one household, the whole family tree lives together. The grandmother, the parents, the oldest boys who are in their 40s, their daughter and son who are in their 30s and 20s. The kids, quote unquote, who are in their 30s and 40s, regressed to interests they had as teenagers, playing video games, going on Disneyland trips, while the mom of the home does everyone's laundry and continues habits she had when the family was much younger, when the people were children. If any of them mention moving out or anything like that, the mom receives that as abandonment and accuses them of not loving her. Listening to aspects of the Dependency podcast, Deep Dive, available patrons only, brought to light several areas I have seen in this particular family, the lack of confidence in the areas the adults should have, but don't. In in situations like this, how can family members establish independence later in life if this is how they were raised? End of email. Yeah, so just looking at a family that is still living, you know, just looking at adult, quote-unquote, kids who are still living at home, we don't know that they suffer from dependency of dependent personality disorder. So uh, we just can't know that. But you did bring up this notion and also, we can't look at their behaviors like a forty year old who plays video games and likes to go to Disneyland. We can't look at that and know that they have dependent personality. We can't you know you even say that the mom still does the laundry. well, again, we can't know that someone is dependent we We might say they're enmeshed, you know, but we'd really have to ask everyone in the family and get an honest answer as to whether or not they're really getting their needs met and whether or not they feel forced into a situation and whether or not someone has the schemas that need to be present for dependent personality to exist. And that's very important. And a lot of people will learn about any personality disorder and they, they'll pull away like one or two facts out of a 100 and then any time they see those things, they will diagnose them. You know, like one thing that has with borderline is, Let's say, oh, that person is a cutter. Oh, they they must have borderline. It's like, uh, no, maybe, but, you know, possibly, but who knows? Borderline personality disorder is characterized by the particular schemas and relational traumas that have to be present. And with dependent personality, it's similar. There, there are certain schemas present, you know, most notably a schema of incompetence, and there are others as well. But so you're saying that the mother... When anyone mentions moving out, will receive that as abandonment and will accuse them of not loving her. And possibly the people who want to move out, they don't because they're terrified of harming their mom and the mom is being unreasonable. So is dependency an issue? Well, maybe. Is anyone suffering from independent personality disorder? Eh, based on your description, I don't hear anything that indicates that it's possible. Is this family suffering from some kind of pressure from the mom, who I believe is, you know, in her 50s or 60s or something by that point? Uh, Is there some kind of family pathology that is happening there, relational problem that's happening there? It sounds like it. If people want to move out and the mom emotionally coerces them to stay for unreasonable reasons... Then that is control and emotional control. That's that's, not, that's no fun. Now the mom doesn't wake up in the morning and say, "I'm going to do this for funsies." She's doing it because she's suffering a great deal, probably from her own abandonment schemas. So, you know, upper tier patron Kirk, uh, I don't hear anything dependency related. Now there might be, and it you know, given the scenario that you laid out, if we investigated, this would be something that we would look out for. You know, do the Adult children in their 30s and 40s lack self-esteem regarding their own competence. Do they have extreme excessive fears about being on their own? Then we would be able to say, oh, okay, something's going on here with dependency. Or are they just staying home because they want to, because they like living at home? There's nothing wrong with that. Or are they staying at home because they feel emotionally abused by their mom or all the above? It's just hard to say. All right. This next email is from upper tier patron Sia. She says, I am a high school student and I've been currently working to start including social emotional learning into my school district. Personally, I have a hard time putting words to my emotions because I've never been taught. I wanted to hear your opinion on how to teach students to use proper outlets of emotions and being vulnerable in school. Also, would you recommend using attachment theories in schools? End of email. Well, Sia what a wonderful person you must be. You are a beacon of light in a sea of uh, people who want to ignore emotions. And yes, I do recommend using attachment theory in schools. I recommend using attachment theories in all, in all venues, really at work in the government between countries. It's very important the, the amount of wars that occurred or, you know, whether it was nation to nation or gang to gang or spouse to spouse that were caused by, A lack of awareness or lack of a model of talking about one's fear or hurt is enormous. Um, One country is afraid another country is going to harm them. And so instead of talking about that and figuring out how they're going to help each other out with that, they attack or they build up arms. And then the other person is afraid because you're building up arms. And then you scare each other and then you're going to war. That's basically what the Cold War was all about. And so... It's uh, the amount of death and strife and economy that has been wasted on the lack of awareness of one's fear and hurt is enormous. So uh, do I recommend using attachment theory in schools? Yes, it could solve almost all of our problems. (laughs) Weird conspiracy theories, political divide. Everything could be made less severe if people understood and were allowed to talk about their fear and their hurt. And other people heard it and and assumed it was there, but you're saying you know you want to hear my opinion on how to teach students the proper use, outlets of emotions and being vulnerable in school. You know this is a tough one because it depends on the age group, right? You know if you're talking to seven year olds, it's different than talking to seventeen year olds. So I, I don't know what to say. I mean, there's a lot of different uh, methods and that have been worked on for decades. So I'm not going to say that I have all that in my head or that I'm an expert on it. But I will tell you a personal experience. I, for many years, was a psychologically psychological consultant for a school. And part of what they did and they wanted me to help with was to help with this very thing, with helping kids to learn their emotions and help them cope with it. And one of the things – so you can – you know, the things with kids is – they're used to sitting in classes and looking at the whiteboard and, you know, doing homework. And that's typically the way all this stuff is is presented, you know. Let's talk about emotions. What are the seven basic emotions? This kind of stuff. And what needs to happen is experience. People need to experience things. And this is a big principle at my university is experiential learning. I think to some extent we're kind of getting away from that because accreditation is pressuring uh, more uh, academic standards which are fine but it sort of edges out experience but the I'll tell you what we did with this one school and I did this for many many years and it was always just so glorious to see was we it was just me and about 300 students in this auditorium and all the teachers you know all the adults left except for me and it was explained you know, it was a whole procedure of like how to explain. The older kids were kind of in charge, and there was this orientation. I won't go into the whole thing, and I, I did a, I had a whole system for training everyone on it. But, but what we ended up doing at, at the end of the whole process was, again, just me and about 300 students in this room. And one by one, kids would volunteer. They'd just get up and sit in the hot seat that was... In the middle of this auditorium, the horseshoe auditorium with the 300 students looking at the one person on in the hot seat and the kid, sometimes the kid would be, uh, you know, sixth grade, the, the school was sixth to twelfth grade. So sometimes the kid, they weren't usually, well, I think sixth graders were excluded. So I think it was seventh through twelfth and uh, it was encouraged that the younger kids actually participated more because the older kids had done it before. Anyway, point is, is that any age, any kid aged, you know, seventh grade to 12th grade would sit in the hot seat and they would talk about some difficult situation that they went through. Some of them would cry. Some of them wouldn't. And the rest of the, the auditorium would just listen and It was an extremely respectful environment. No one um, acted out. The kids in other circumstances were constantly talking over other people and had to be, you know, uh, told to shut up by a lot of teachers. But in this context, because of the, I don't know, the content or the fact that it, it wasn't really directed by teachers, and it wasn't really directed by me. I directed the older kids who would direct the whole event. And one by one, the kids would, would come up to the front, talk about their feelings. And it was, you could just feel the catharsis and the support and people would, other kids would get up and, and put their, you know, if a kid started crying, other kids would, their friends would come up to the front and put, you know, hold their hand or something. makes me cry just thinking about it. And people would hug and cry and express and feel safe and, and it wasn't just the nerdy emotionally present kids. It was all the kids. In fact, usually it was the popular kids that would actually get up and talk. So to see, you know, imagine the school you went to and maybe some of you even had this, the most popular kid, the jock gets up, sits down in the chair and just starts crying about his mom that has an alcohol problem. And, to see his friends also crying coming up and holding his hand. And that, that was an extremely powerful experience. Now it was only once a year. And if it was once a week, once a month or something, I think it could add a greater effect. But you know, I imagine it was significant for these kids. I know some of the kids in the, uh, cause I did this thing for so many years, like, I don't know, 12 years or something. Some of those kids ended up becoming therapists. I don't know if that had anything to do with it, <laughs> but um, anyway. uh, And the way I know that is because at my professional organization uh, events, my local you know group of marriage and family therapists, I, I I'll bump into them sometimes. I'll be like, "Oh, you were a student at that's They're like, "Yeah." Anyway, Um, so that's now. I'm not saying that's the only way to do it, but. That's the sort of thing I recommend, Sia, that if you can, organize. Now, on the other hand, getting this organized was very difficult. To, you know, and, and actually, what I'll tell you is even though we had done this for so long, and it was universally loved, and it was the highlight of this whole kind of event that we had over a number of days, it was canceled. Because every time we did it, um, I would... So what would happen is I would walk out of the auditorium... So, we would always have to cut people off. We would do it for, I don't know, two, two and a half hours or something. And and at some point, I would just have to stand up and say, uh, okay, we're out of time. And if if I hadn't done that, I probably would have gone on for five, ten hours or something. I mean, so many people wanted to talk. and But anyway, we'd be walking out of the auditorium, and there were parent chaperones, and there were teachers, And they'd all be kind of looking at me because kids would be coming out crying and holding each other. And, and sometimes kids would kind of trickle out and cry. And we had another room where they could talk to other people um, if they wanted to cry about something. And obviously there's like trauma triggering concerns and that we would account for, which I won't go into. But the point is, is we'd be walking out of the auditorium and all the other adults along with me, the, the teachers and the. And the parents were all just terrified They, to see kids crying and to see them dealing with emotions was really scary to them. Now, I'm not going to say all of them. There were certainly some that seemed to either be neutral or even supportive. But the the average reaction was one of fear and one of of dysregulation themselves to, to see kids having emotions was very hard for them. For me, to see anyone, including kids having emotions, is, is just a normal day for me. That's what I do, not only with my clients. You know, I, I think I've talked about this before, where some days I'll notice that, like, every single person I talk to cries. <laughs> every student I talk to will cry. You know, I'll have, like, a, a meeting with a student, and they'll be going through something difficult, and they'll start crying. Every client I talk to cries. Everyone's crying, and the world doesn't come to an end crying is fine it's a normal part of emotional expression and it's often suppressed you know and and people because of that reason and the things that they're taught they're terrified of it and particularly of teenage crying cuz like oh what if suicide happens it's like well if they're sad and they're crying they're getting it out they're expressing it they're not suppressing it it's good that they're doing this in fact you're probably lowering everyone's risk of suicide now there it can backfire and i would account for that with various different means and it it wasn't without its complications sometimes for sure but it was all handleable and if you would have told me about this model before i did it in the beginning i would have said oh it sounds kind of risky but what I experienced was it wasn't risky. It was actually totally safe. And I did it year after year. And every time I was like, is this the year that something horrible happens? And it never did. Nothing horrible ever happened. Why? Because when you allow people to be human, good things happen. (laughs) And when you put pressure on people to not be human and not to express their emotions, bad things can happen. So, um, so anyway, Sia, what I'll say is that to do these kinds of things in schools can produce a lot of pushback from the adults because they've been socialized into a world that tells them that emotions are scary and that they can get sued for these kinds of things. And so what ends up happening is that you end up doing you know, lectures on the seven basic emotions and that's it. Now, what I will say is that some of you will even email me because I rant about this often. And they'll say, no, actually, in my school, I'm a teacher. I'm doing a lot of things to help the kids. And, and yes, uh, it is increasing. And there are some people that are doing amazing work. And I applaud you for that. And uh, that's great. But in general, uh, at least anecdotally, and maybe based on research that I read a long time ago, it is not enough. Um, now, should schools be responsible for this? Mm, I don't know. Uh, certainly, it's the parents' job to raise the kids early on in an emotionally attuned way. And it's our job as a society to help those parents. Because, you know, y- you have parents that they're just going through life. And they're trying to make ends meet. And they're trying to survive. And then they fall in love. And then they decide to get married. And then they decide to have kids. And then they have kids. At what point are do they have time or the effort To seek out attachment um, deep dives (laughs) or parenting understanding and attunement understanding. So it's up to us as a society as a public health measure to actually expose people to these ideas rather than making it a voluntary thing like, well, you know, if someone wants help to parenting. They can call us up. Uh, You know, we need to actually expose it in the same way that we have Sesame Street for children that. Helps them to learn about emotions and also the alphabet and numbers, but and socializing and this sort of thing. But where's the Sesame Street for parents? Where is the show that appeals to parents and teaches them how to attune to to a child's emotions and how to help them develop that? Anyway, I'm getting off topic, but um, see so ya. Yeah, let me know how it goes. All right, this next email is from anonymous upper tier patron. They say, How do you break through religious shame with a partner who seems to avoid sex? I am a night person, and he is a morning person, and energy levels due to his depression and or medication are also a factor. There is a pattern of becoming sad when sex is on the table or flirtation ramps up. How do I encourage confidence and openness to prevent these situations and build a stronger sexual connection? End of email. Okay, well, so what I'm hearing is, That you have different things in terms of night person, morning person. So that is a factor in having difficulty, you know, having sex. And you also say that he's depressed and he has medication that can also lower his libido. And he also has religious sexual shame. And you also say that he becomes sad when sex is, quote unquote, on the table. So the... Answer this, of course, is to go to a couples therapist who specializes or knows about this sort of thing, because it can be very, very complicated. The amount of things and the depth of those things that can result in uh, reduction in libido or reduction in motivation to have sex or even just not wanting to have sex is profound. There, We have so many things working against us in our society um, and in culture. And in practicality, sometimes that really just makes uh, sustaining the idealized sexual life very, very difficult for, for people. So uh, I won't be able to give you advice, anonymous up to your patron that can account for all those different things. Um, what I will say, just based on what you're saying is uh, being depressed can essentially eliminate your sexual libido. Not just make it so you're just kind of not into it. Make make depression can and medication for depression also incidentally can make it so that sex is actually abhorrent to you. And that's important to know that um, some people who are depressed and and are taking meds, it might just not be like they're you know they're not just kind of not into it. It's like really really hard for them to do it. And so and it's something that they don't often talk about when they prescribe the meds. Um, incidentally, so the birth control pills can also do this to some people, not always. Um, and it's important to recognize that, that some conditions, some medications can just eliminate your sexual drive. Um, one of the ways that I will talk about this with some people is that, and this isn't true for everyone, but for some people, when something is going wrong in their life, Sex is very difficult for them to have motivation to do. Um, in other words, for some people, and again, not all people, certainly other people are completely different than this, but for some people, everything has to be perfect in order for them to feel comfortable having sex. Every, the house has to be clean. The, you know, the to-do list has to be all crossed off. The relationship has to be pretty good. There can't have been a recent um, fight. They must have the energy there. They must have the free time, you know, for some people, they kind of need all the stars to align and that's okay. Uh, just noticing that and, you know, accommodating that or talking about that is important. And and that's really the key. Uh, an anonymous operator patron is to have a conversation with your partner about this and just get to know each other. You know, you just say, Hey, I want to have sex more often. And you listen to him talk about where he's coming from and that you, um, allow for each other to be who you are, you know, just, just to tell them, look, if you don't want to have sex, that's fine. Um, uh, but I want to know who you are. And sometimes people will avoid those conversations because, uh, for the low libido person, there's tremendous shame and worry that they're going to be um, broken up with if they reveal that they really just don't want to have sex. And so, there could be a lot of pain around this. And so starting from the beginning and really allowing each person to be who they are is is a start. From there, you can, you know, through couples therapy, expand on that and get to know each other. Maybe there are things that he wants that he has a hard time asking for. You know, there's just a lot of different possible reasons, but that's what I'll say about that. All right. This next email is from uh, an upper tier patron, Samantha from Virginia. She writes, My parents got divorced when I was in my early 20s and my dad remarried. His wife brought along two sons that are about 5 and 12 years younger than me. Since then, I've noticed my dad embracing his wife's kids more than his own biological children. I can't imagine how young kids handle this. I'm struggling at the age of 31. What information do you know about divorce late in adult child's life? End of email. Yeah, so one of the myths out there is that if you divorce when the children are in their 20s or older, that the adult children will be able to handle it better. And this is actually not true. It can be true for some, but it actually can be extremely difficult. Uh, I, I know many people who, professionally and otherwise, who were, say, 25, 30 years old when their parents divorced, and it was devastating to them. Um, it's, it can be very, very hard. So the fact, Samantha, that you're struggling is well known and well understood. The other thing is to see your father um, shower these new children with a lot of love. And it sounds like the kids are maybe teenager, young twenties, and if and and to feel hurt by that would make sense. I mean, on one level, you didn't decide to let these two randos into your life. The you know these step siblings of yours. He he made that decision. You, all, you also didn't decide for your parents to get a divorce. And so a lot of this is happening completely outside of your control. And as a family therapist, one of the things that I would do in situations like this is we have to start from the beginning and we'd have to go, we'd have to have sessions with you and everyone else in the family and really talk about, you know, how you feel about the whole thing, how you felt about the divorce, how you feel about your dad remarrying, how you feel about these this new woman that's in your life, your 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 stepmom, how you feel about these stepkids in your life, and and how they feel about you, and those conversations almost never happen. It's usually just like, okay, dad's getting married. Okay, I guess I have step siblings. Okay, I guess I just have to deal with that now. And it's there's no discussion. There's no um, you know apologies. There's no bonding. You know the these people. You're watching your dad. You know, your dad, it sounds like is bonding with his, with his stepkids, which is good. And you're seeing the result of that bond, but you haven't bonded with them. And if you bonded with them, then maybe you'd feel less upset about it. The other thing is, is possible that you have not received your needs being met from your dad for your whole life and to watch him giving his love and attention to anyone else besides you can be very painful. I don't know, but that could also be a factor. So Get a family therapist, get everyone in there, and start talking about it. Um, It sounds absurd, but family therapists are very used to this and very adept at getting to the bottom of these things and helping people to heal and to recover. Our next email is from patron Rachel. They write, I'm grateful for how frequently you acknowledge asexuality and aromanticism. I've identified as asexual and aromantic for many years now, but I've always struggled to define what separates an emotionally intimate friendship from a romantic partnership. I sometimes experience feelings that go beyond, quote-unquote, normal friendship, but I'm not really sure if they qualify as romantic feelings since I don't experience the sexual or, or sensual attraction that most people associate with romantic partners. Is it mostly physical intimacy that makes the difference, commitment to one another, the degree of emotional intimacy, some other X factor end of email? Yeah, that would be hard. If you are asexual and aromantic, meaning that you're, and I have to be careful when I define it, because sometimes I make a mistake, but generally speaking, asexual people are not interested in having sex, or they don't have sex. I I can't remember the exact definition. (laughs) I'm just going to go with uh, not interested in having sex. And, um, and aromantic is someone who's generally not interested in having a romantic relationship with someone. I know there are a lot of nuances to that. It's been a while since I've, I did a whole deep dive on it a while back. And so I forget my notes, but anyway, if you aren't interested in having sex and you're you're not interested in having a soulmate, a romantic relationship with someone where you have a spouse, a partner, how do you differentiate between... Uh, having a you know just a really good friendship and maybe you're dipping into romantic uh, relationship you know if you're aromantic how do you know you're actually aromantic or maybe just demi romantic you know just partially aromantic Um, yeah that'd be a hard thing to know and you know this is a question for the ages it's just hard to define it it all has to do with like you can define it by behaviors like how often you call someone or how often you think of someone or when you're in a tough situation who do you call when when something funny happens in your life who do you who do you tell Um, these kinds of questions can zero in on some behaviors that might differentiate what people would commonly call a romantic relationship as opposed to a good friend but you know how do you really define that you know a lot of people define it by sex right if it's like if if you just talk to the person you never have sex then you are in you know you're a friendship you're, you're just really good friends. But if you're asexual and you don't have sex with anyone or you don't want to have sex with anyone, then how do you know, am I in a spousal relationship or am I just in a really good friendship or it, is this what romantic feelings are like? Because I, I really like this person and I really want to spend a lot of time with them. It, am I? What's going on here? Yeah, it'd be hard. You know, I you ask, you know, is there some sort of X factor? People will talk about that, right? That is. You know, you know it when you feel it. How do you know you're in love? Well, you'll know when you feel it. Eh, that's okay. Uh, it's it. It doesn't help some people, <laughs> right? Because how do you know when you feel it? So you're, you know, how do you know? How do you know that um, you're in love? Well, you'll just know. People will say, okay, but I feel like I might be in love right now. How do I know if I'm in? <laughs> it's just it's just hard to know. I think one of the experiences that often uh, companies, spousal relationships or romantic relationships is, is obsession with the person in the beginning. You know, the, the feeling of, I just have to see that person. I want to touch that person. I want to, I just want to, I don't want them to be with anyone else, but you know, what if you're polyamorous? And again, what if you're aromantic romantic or demiromantic? What if you're asexual? It's, you know, it's hard to, hard to know. I would say that it doesn't matter, right? Uh, Patron Rachel. It's like, how do you define relationships? Um, Do what you need. What do you need to do? What do you feel like you need? Do you need to get close to someone? If, if you do, then do it. And if you care to define it as a, a deep friendship, as an asexual, aromantic person, then do that. Or if you want to say, Hmm, I think I'm getting a little bit of a romantic tingle with this person. And hmm, how does that feel? You know, that that's what I would do. All right. Well, on that tingling note, That does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do.